Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's good to see you on this Sunday morning. We're coming close now to the end of our series on the church, and I've been sharing that series with you over the past couple of months because I want very, very much for you to reconsider what the church is and why it matters. And in our last two installments, today and this next Sunday as the Lord tarries, I want to give you some good reasons why you should love the church why you should love the church universal, why you should love the church local. My heart in this Sunday and for the next is for you to see with me afresh why the church is so vital to you, your walk with Christ, so vital to others and so vital to the world. Why it's important to love the church for the right reasons and in the right ways. Do I love the church for what the church does for me or do I love the church because of what Christ has done for me? Those seem to me to be two critical, critical questions. When I got up this morning and I was taking the dog out, I asked Siri on my watch who won the Wake Pittsburgh game. I asked her, I did, not, I did not get the answer I had expected. You see, on Saturdays, I have to rest, you know, and, and I got to go to bed early because of this morning. So I asked her, and she said, Wake Forest was crushed. <laughs> she, that's what she said, crushed. And I said, that is not the news I wanted. Surely this cannot be right. So I asked her again just to be sure she was right. The second time she said they were soundly defeated. I'm just thinking she felt badly for the way she said it the first time, but she literally said it different the second time. Now I have to choose. Do I uh, love Wake Forest? Yes or no? And well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm an alum and all that, but do I love it for what it can do for me or for some other reason? or maybe for what it did for me with education. Do you see the difference? You wouldn't think very highly of me if I said, you know what, they, they lost. This is last time they won an ACC championship was in 2006. Here was a, you know, another rare opportunity. They've blown it. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going for App State. <laughs> I mean, what would you think of me? Some of you think I'd finally come to my senses, but no. No. I want you to love the church, universal and local. I want you to love the church for the right reasons and in the right way. And if COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us that our view of the church, for so many of us, has been twisted and it has not been biblical. That we haven't loved it like we could or should. And so I want to kind of land the plane, if you will, in this series and these next two Sundays looking at the question of how and why we should love the church. Why it's so important, why the relationships in it are so critical, so vital. Now, there are four questions, I think, that um, you and I need to bear in mind with every and any relationship we find ourselves in. Because there are four questions I believe that every human being is asking probably all the time in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And those questions are these. Am I valued? Do I fit? Am I wanted? And does anyone claim me? Am I valued? Do I fit? Am I wanted? 
Does anyone claim me? Listen, every person you come into contact with, every waitress who serves you, every manager you ever work for, every classmate in your school, your spouse, your kids, your mother, your father, your doctor, every single person is looking for someone or something to answer these questions for them. We all want to know whether we are valued and accepted and wanted and claimed. I'm convinced that we humans ask these kinds of questions, and this is critical, because we have a universal God-given need for family, or should I say healthy family. And if a healthy family provides anything for us, it provides for us a commitment, a declaration, you are valued, you are accepted, we want you with us, we claim you, we be you belong to us. You're one of us. Few things I think in life are more painful than when just one of these commitments is in question. Many of you will know my, uh, my youngest daughter, Bethany, married an ensign in the Navy, and he just left for his first six months deployment. And it turned out to be a lot harder this week than she thought it was going to be. And she called me, and she basically said, Dad, can I come home? Well, she doesn't know anybody in Jacksonville, really. She, she's kind of gotten connected to a local church, but she, she doesn't really know anybody there. And so she calls me, and I know that's what she was asking me, even though she didn't ask me that, that's what she was asking me. And she was wanting to know, hey, Dad, uh, am I still valued? Do you still accept me? Do you want me with you? And, you know, she's got a great big German shepherd, and I don't know that I want the great big German shepherd, but I do want her. <laughs> she said, Dad, do you, she was saying, Dad, do you claim me? Do I still belong? And from my perspective as a, as a follower of Jesus and a biblical Christian, no, she doesn't belong. When her husband's in the States, she belongs with him. Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. But if he's out in the Atlantic somewhere, she belongs here with me. And I loved it too because she said, Dad, and you know what? She said, I miss Center Grove. I miss Center Grove. I miss my church. I need to come back to my church. I need to come back to my church. It's telling to me that hands down, the most common description of believers to be found in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. There is no other description you will find more often in the New Testament of believers than as brothers and sisters. And the fact that these words are used to describe believers reveals that whatever else the church is, it is at its heart family. A group of people in deep relationships marked by appreciation and care and support. And that is our subject for today, the church as family. And so I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, later we're going to look at Galatians 4. But I want you to start at Ephesians chapter 2. We've seen already that Paul's letter to the uh, Ephesians includes a number of reminders of who and what believers are in Christ together, of what the church is. And he addresses specifically the Greek believers found there. And he calls on them to remember, and he says to them, listen, 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 you came later to Christ than those Jewish believers, but you are on the same playing field. They, they don't have an edge on you. What Christ did for them, Christ has done for you. Christ won peace for you with God. He won peace for, for them with God. You are all on the same playing field. The great mystery of the church that you are at peace with God through the death of Christ. That mystery belongs and marks you as well as it does those Jewish believers who came to Christ first. I want you to know that. I don't want you to forget that. He says, in the same way, you share in that great miracle of the church. God has taken people from all different nations, tribes, and tongues and, and bound them together in one new community and one new people. 
Because of that, you have ready, unlimited access to God the Father. He has bound you together, given himself to you as Father. Now you have access by his grace. And that's something else you share. Nobody has any more or any less access than you do. So you have the same great peace. You have the same great love of the Father, the same great access. There's one additional truth Paul really nails as he brings this section of the scripture to a close. Perhaps I think it's the most important truth about the church of all. It's a truth that those Greek believers in Ephesus, a truth that they especially need to hear. The truth that the church is family. You see, as they came to faith in Christ and became part of local churches, they found these churches already full of, of Jewish believers, and they undoubtedly felt at ease and felt out of place. It was hard for them to feel at home in the church. And no doubt the same questions we ask were the questions they were asking as they entered the church, came to faith in Christ, were brought into the church. Does anyone know I'm here? Is, is anyone like me here? Does anyone want me here? Does anyone care if I, if I connect and keep connecting? And Paul's answer to those questions is unmistakable. And I think it exposes the very heart of what the local church is, how its members are seen by God, and how its members should see it and see each other, and that, again, is family. And so Paul says to the Greek believers there in Ephesus, look with me at verse 19. He comes to, he's bringing this section to a conclusion. He'll expand on it even some more, shifting metaphors to an architectural set of metaphors, but the focus, verse 19, he's bringing it all to conclusion. He says, so then, listen, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and, he says, don't miss this, members of the household of God. Before the Greek believers knew Christ, they were, he says, strangers and aliens to the promises of God and the people of God. And though now, because of faith in Christ, they have, with the Jews, become strangers and aliens to the world around them, them, these Greek believers are no longer strangers and aliens to God or his great goodness. Indeed, what they are now, and this is what he's saying, is you are now fellow citizens and you are now members of the household of God. First, I want you to see with me. They're fellow citizens with Jewish believers. They're citizens together in a new international eternal kingdom ruled by God as king. They're in that kingdom, again, on equal terms. Jews and Greeks are equally free, equally secure there in Christ. They're fellow citizens, not members of competing races or ethnicities or nations or tribes like they were before. There are no second-rate citizens regardless of who they are or where they come from. That's what Paul says, but, but, but. What comes next is far more critical. In Christ, Paul says, believers are also now members of the household of God. Now, we saw earlier in verse 18 that in Christ, God the Father grants all believers access to himself as a father because he loves them. But now with this picture of the household of God, we're shown something deeper about that relationship. And Paul points believers to a truth that he makes more explicit elsewhere. And that is that through the life and the work of Christ, watch this, God not only redeems believers from sin's penalty and power, he not only justifies or declares them righteous in his sight or not guilty, but he also adopts them. And it's critical for us to understand that this adoption that God granted to us was not something the cross required. Now, if you think about it, when, when Christ conquered sin and death and defeated the flesh inside of us, the world around us, and Satan beyond us, 
When he did that, he, as Paul says to the Colossians in in chapter one, he moved us out of the kingdom of darkness or the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son the father loves. He made us new citizens. It was a necessary consequence of our having been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. I am no longer a citizen of this world. I am no longer under the dominion of Satan. Satan, I am now a a member of the kingdom of life. Christ is my king. God is my king. There's been this extraordinary shift and it had to happen. But what did not have to happen as a consequence of the cross is for the father to go on and say, you're now a citizen and then go on and say, you're my son. You're my daughter. And yet he did. And yet he did. And yet he did. And when Paul talks about grace upon grace, in my own heart and mind, this is a a powerful, powerful illustration of how God's grace outgraces his grace. (laughs) Not just a citizen. See, there's a world difference between being a citizen. Now, let's, let's just put it out there like it is. You and I both own the White House along with 300 plus million other people. So I guess we each get a speck of it. We own it as citizens. Uh, But we can't walk in there just anytime, any way we want to, to have a conversation with the president. I am a citizen, but that citizenship has some limits. Now, if I were on close personal terms with the president, I could do that. And we are. We can as followers of, of, of Christ. But that relationship is not as deep or intimate. The, the relationship of a citizen to a president, citizen to a governor, citizen to a county commissioner is not as deep or intimate, is it, as the relationship of a son or a daughter to a father. He gave us access to him because of the love he had for us as a father. But he went on and he did something greater. He brought us into his family. It's in Galatians 4 that Paul really explains this. And I want you to take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, and look with me there. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. God, God made this choice. He didn't have to make. And Paul explains it in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And this is what he says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, there's Christmas, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive, there it is, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. You are a daughter. And if you are a son or daughter, then you are an heir through God. All right. Apart from Christ, we're all enslaved to the world around us, the flesh inside us and and the devil beyond us. Christ came, born of a woman, human as we are, born under the same law of God we were born under. He fulfilled that law. We failed to fulfill it. He followed it perfectly. We failed to follow it. And in doing so, Christ showed himself to be the true and only son of God with a rightful claim to being in God's family and enjoying all the privileges of that family. But what Paul shows us here is that God wanted more than just citizens who are saints. He wanted a family made of sons and daughters. 
And so Galatians 4 tells us something we couldn't know if God hadn't shared it, that he redeemed those who were under the law so that they might receive, verse 5, adoption as sons. Watch this. God's ultimate purpose in his true son's coming to defeat Satan and sin was to create a far more intimate relationship than a king-to-subject relationship. Through his one son, God added many sons. Through his one son, God chose to add many daughters. And I don't know about you, but I, I sit back and I see that. And I, I can't help but, um, my heart can't help but say how great is the Father's love for us that we should be called sons and daughters. Now, Paul goes on to say that God's adopted family is known by the possession of two gifts. Let's unpack that quickly. You can know you're a son or a daughter by, by whether you possess these things or not. There is first the presence of the Holy Spirit and then the promise of an inheritance. There is the presence of, a, of the Holy Spirit, the promise also of an inheritance. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a gift because his life and work in a person is the proof of sonship and daughterhood. Elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul explains this saying, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. When he leads you, when he prompts you, you know you're his. Now, you don't always follow, do you? But you do know when he prompts you. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Paul says, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It is the spirit in us who prompts us to cry out, Daddy. To cry out, my father. To see him as dear. One of the ways you know you've been genuinely born again and brought into the family is that you have this natural impulse in you to cry out to the Father as Father. The Spirit, verse 16 uh, of Romans 8, bears witness with our spirit, Paul says, that we are children of God. And if we're children, then he says, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's the Holy Spirit in believers who prompts and compels them to gladly exclaim, God is my Father. It's the Holy Spirit who confirms and authenticates and proves our adoption. Watch, watch. With every conviction of sin, the Spirit says you're a son. Have you ever thought about that? Every conviction of sin, the Spirit is saying to you, wait a minute. When you're working out at the gym, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're a son. Your son, with every delight in the things of God, with every bit of joy that you experience when you see someone else come to faith in Christ, when you see the kingdom of God advance in the life of another person, you see a brother or sister in Christ becoming more like Jesus, when there's delight in you, the Spirit is actually saying to you as well, you're a daughter. You wouldn't love these things if you weren't a daughter. But when you see the character of Christ start to show up in the life of another believer, there's joy. Why is that? Because you're a daughter. You're a daughter. It brings you joy to see someone else becoming more like Jesus. With every encouragement in Christ, with every comfort from his love, with every feeling of affection and sympathy for his people, the Spirit confirms your family, your family, your family. But not only is the presence of the Holy Spirit a gift of the Father to his family, but so too is the promise of an inheritance. We See that at the end of verse 7, Paul says that those made sons and daughters with Christ also have become heirs uh, in or with Christ. All the promises of God to Abraham, the promises of his blessing are theirs in Christ. And the greatest of these promises that we inherit is the promise of God's fatherly presence in our lives. 
Redemption means a ready access to the presence of God the Father. We've already seen that in verse 18, but adoption, adoption means we live with a constant assurance of the Father's nearness to us. He is close to us. Adoption assures us he is close to us in our joys and in our triumphs. He's close to us when we're brokenhearted. He is close to us when we're crushed in spirit because he has adopted us. We are never alone. Because we're his, we're never forsaken. Because we are his children, he is always near, always watching, always working, always listening, always ready to answer when we call upon him because we are his family and because we are dear to his heart. Some of you right now are going through pain deep, maybe that you've never expressed to anybody else. You are a believer, but I want to say to you, I want to speak this into your life. The Father is near. The Father is near. The Father is at work. The Father has not forsaken you. The Father has not abandoned you. You are dear to his heart when you hurt. He knows it when you hurt. He hurts. Somebody here needed to hear that this morning. You are never alone. You say, but I don't feel that way. I don't care how you feel. How you feel has nothing to do with the fact that God loves you. He's near. So, in sum, God the Father chose to make the most of the cross of his Son by going beyond making us citizens to making us sons and daughters. He says, on the basis of the cross, not only will I forgive you, not only will I receive you into my kingdom, and not only will I welcome you into my presence like a father, I will do still more. I will make you family. I will not only call you my people, I will call you my children my sons and my daughters. And so I say to you, fix this in your mind, believer. The church is not merely like a family to God. The church is family to God. And that particular truth should inform everything about the way we see the church, the way we relate to the church, and the way we, we uh, respond to the church. The church is not merely like a family to God. The church is family. We are family. Now, the question is then, what does this set of truths look like when applied to life here and now? The fact of God's gracious adoption immediately calls believers to pause and think about how they see and relate to and treat the local church and the people in it. Here's what I would say. If you are a believer, and if the church is God's family by his choice, and it is, and if others in the church are your brothers and sisters by his choice, and they are, hey, we don't get to choose our brothers and sisters. Some people don't like the church because of the people in it. <laughs> I don't know, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? I don't know what you're going to do with that. I think you're fighting a lost battle. 
Who put those people in this church? God did. <laughs> what was he thinking? I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking when he put me in it. I don't know. But here we are. If the church is God's family, if others in the church are your brothers and sisters, those facts have implications for your life and how you live it as an adopted child of God and God's family. Because you are valued and because everyone else in the body of Christ is valued by the Father, accepted by the Father, wanted by the Father, claimed by the Father, then what that means is that we ought at the same time to value and accept and want and claim each other in the same way that he's done for us. Now that's a tall order and I know that, but it is what we're called to. Good, bad, walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit, we are called to value and accept and want and claim each other. Now, it's important for me to pause and say this. We know or we should know that God has no natural born children. No one is born a Christian. To this day, I still hear people say that, and I, and I, I, I think I know what they mean, but I also know they're wrong. No one can actually say, I've always been a Christian. That's the equivalent of saying, I've always been a natural son or daughter of God. No adoption for me. I've never had a sin problem. No, there, there, here's the reality. There's only been one true natural son of God, and that is Jesus Christ. And all members, all the other members, every single one of God's family have been adopted, born again, forgiven of sin, redeemed from fallen lives, rescued from sin's penalty, and chosen by God to be his. And by this choice, I want you to see something phenomenal because I, it, this impacts the way I see you and should impact the way you see me. By his choice, God, watch this, watch this, this is, this is phenomenal. By this choice, God, not only by adopting us into his family, God not only, not only gives us the Holy Spirit and makes us heirs, gives us gifts, but by his adoption, God gave himself a gift. I'm looking at the gift God gave himself this morning. Look around you and see all the gifts God gave himself. Now, I'm not saying everybody in this room is a follower of Jesus, but my guess is many, many are. In Ephesians 1.18, earlier in our, in our passage in Ephesians, Paul says that he prays these Ephesians might know, and listen to the way, what he says, the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. When God adopted believers in Jesus, he gave himself the gift of family. We are the gift God gave himself. Earthly. Kings and presidents and dictators and prime ministers, they value treasuries full of money as their wealth and their source of honor. But God is more than any human king or president. He is a father who is, and I want you to see this, making for himself a family. He sees and values his people as his wealth, as his source of honor. We are his inheritance. We are God's wealth. We are God's source of honor. That's a high calling to live up to. The highest privilege we've been given, if we are believers, is this, being God's adopted children. And we must never forget it. We can live, and we should live, saying, I am a gift God's given to himself. And looking at each other, saying, you are a gift God has given to himself. But even more importantly saying, 
We are together a gift God gives to himself. And what this means is we've got to be cautious how we treat God's family. And that means that none of us can live, and we Americans are so, so bad about this. None of us can live as if we're the only child God has. Or none of us can live as if we're the only child that matters. One of the things that's really harming the health of the body of Christ in the United States is that we have so many people who are loosely affiliated with a local church and they all act like their their only children. This means that because we are together a gift that God gives himself, it means that we belong together. It means that he made us to need his family and to need each other. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. No matter how nice, how good, how needs meeting, the parents of your kid's soccer team may be, there is no comparison to what a healthy local church is for his own people. It is in the church that the Father is near. His spirit is present. His son is the head giving leadership. Nothing else in this world comes close. So I want to say to you, beware substitutes. Even the best substitutes. Church online is not a substitute. Now, I'm going to pause and say, I have people watching. I know there are health issues, and I respect that. But I feel for you because you can't do what we're doing in this room right now. I really do. Because one of the things COVID has taught us is we need this. We need some guy sitting on a stool with a Bible open in front of him talking loudly to us (laughs) with love, breaking open the word, making application. We need to hear laughter going across the room. We need to hear each other singing the praises of God. Together. Ultimately, church online is no substitute. Parachurch organizations committed to doing God's work in a particular way and place are not substitutes. Nothing else can be for us what the family of God can be for us when it is healthy. There's this peculiar affection and care and encouragement and accountability and support that believers give each other. We are family We had our deacon's Christmas party this um, Friday. One of the things I told them, one of the things that blessed my heart before we had the meal was listening to one of our deacon's wives talking to another of our deacon's wives about the things of God. Encouraging her in the faithfulness of God in Christ. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can talk about, but at the end of the day, the only things we're talking about are what God has done and God is doing and what God will do in and through his son, Jesus. And I saw one sister raise the spirit up of another sister in one conversation, and I saw the body of Christ doing and being what it was meant to do and be. We belong together. We're family. Okay, let's go ahead and say this too. Because we're family, we can be messy. We can say things to each other that hurt. 
We can do things to each other that hurt. We can disappoint each other. Do you think that Bethany has never disappointed me? She has. Do you think I've never disappointed her? I have. Does that mean that when she calls and says, essentially, Dad, can I come home? I go, nah. Nah. I'm looking for a new daughter. You disappointed me. You remember seven years ago? Nah. We're messy. We're messy. God help us, though, we walk away too quickly from our family. Unlike human families, we're melded together by one who is greater, who does more in us and for us than we can do ourselves. We need each other. We need his family. We need to declare regularly to each other, I value, I accept, I want, I claim you in Christ because he has valued, accepted, wanted, and claimed me in Christ. Because I recognize he, want, he values and accepts and wants and claims us in Christ. We need the kind of relationships with other believers that are true of any healthy human family. Relationships where there's this unconditional affection and care and encouragement and accountability and support. See, yeah. I'm just going to say it. We Americans, we do church all wrong. We do church all wrong. We, we treat it like an event or a club. Or some kind of organization formed to do good, good things. Or as I like to say it, a, a vendor, a spiritual vendor providing goods and services that we will use so long as we like them. Well, we've gotten them wrong. We're family. We're meant to call each other brother and sister. And so many of us, even those who are attached to a local church or who have membership in a local church in America, don't have anyone, honestly, who calls them brother or sister. Can anyone call you brother or sister? People who come together in a church setting might know your name. But my question to you is, when you gather with the body of Christ, does anyone there know your pain? Now, men are going to hate this. I'm not telling anybody my problems. Well, you just told me one. It took a little while to get that one right. Yeah. Does anybody know your pain? Does anybody love you in your problems and your possibilities in Christ? Is there anybody who has permission to challenge your sin? To stay with you through it all? Can anybody call you brother or sister? Does anyone have permission to walk with you through life like family? See, 
the church is not merely like a family. The church is family. The church is not merely like a family to God. The church is family to God. And the question of the hour is this. Is the local church family to you? or just like a family, or like a team, or like a club, or like a spiritual vendor. Be very careful how you see and what you do with God's family. Let me remind you of something as I close. That by making his people, a family, God means for us to be a visual model of the gospel before the world. He means for us to demonstrate before others' eyes the good news of reconciliation. He means for us to reveal him to the world as the father that he is, a father who is looking for a family, a father who's making a family out of broken people searching for a true father. We are to be living proof of what this father can do. John Stott, the late uh, British pastor and theologian, comments on this saying, and this was 20, 30 years ago, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and God's achievement it already is, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other. Only then will the world believe in Christ as the peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due his name. You see, loved ones, the local church is a model of God's purposes and a living flesh and blood demonstration of God's family. The church is not a team. The church is not a club. The church is not a spiritual vendor supplying spiritual goods and services. For us to shop for, consume, and then move on. The church is not merely like a family. The church is family. And it should be family for us. A place where, a people among whom, we can speak to each other and say, brother and sister, and mean it when we say it. Father, as your family, we bow before you. As your family, we claim nothing except this that you adopted us by your great grace and placed us along with others together and left us in this world so that we might be a living flesh and blood demonstration of your great mercy, your great love, your great grace. You call us sons and daughters, and this is our highest privilege. But out of it comes the high responsibility of being 
brothers and sisters to each other. Remake in us, Lord God, a love for our family that echoes back the love you've shown to us. Remove from us all those false ideas and wrong loves for the church and replace them with the kind of love with which you formed it to begin with. I pray and ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. All your life, you've been looking for someone to say, I accept you. All your life, you've looked for someone to say, I value you. All your life, you've looked for someone to say, you fit. All your life, you've looked for someone to say, I claim you and really mean it. All your life, you've longed for and hungered for those things to be said and meant and done. The good news of the gospel is God himself has said all of those things to you and to me. And with open arms, he invites us into his family with repentance and faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. He says, you draw near to me. You can be sure I will draw near to you. I want you to be where I am. If today you're ready to gather up all that you have and are, turn from a life lived for self, put your faith in this crucified, now risen Christ. I want to invite you to find this new father and to enter this new family. Pastors, would you stand? As the service is done, you'll find these men uh, in or about the next steps area. Let them know, I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready. I need to become part of God's family. Hey, by the way, adoption is one of the great options for believers to make a difference in the lives of people and to advance the gospel. One of the finest books I know anything about is by Russell Moore, Adopted for Life. If you've been thinking about adoption, praying about adoption, I want to encourage you, if you would, there's some copies of this in the trellis and vine. Grab a copy. See what God might do. God loves to see his adopted people adopt for the sake of the gospel and his glory. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.